I'll answer these questions here first. What? No. Next question. Just ask the question, please. Not talking about the refs. No. Next question. Not talking about the calls. No. No. Not talking about the game. What? It becomes a mental game. It's just one game. Next question. Do we have a chance? Yes. Next question. We need to attack. Yes. Next question. Yes, I do. What? Next question. No. I know. It's not. Both power play stuff. Come both teams stuff. These type of situations happen for a reason, and it's good stuff. It's real good stuff. It's really good things. There was a lot of bad things, but there's some good things. It just keeps on building. What? Yes. <coughs> no. And I'm not trying to be a smart pants, but stuff like that. It's a bunch of crap. I disagree how our team's been portrayed here, but it's that. Stop coaching, Pat. Next question. I'm talking about the refs. Next question. I'm talking about the games. Next question. Just ask the question, please. We'll play the same way. Keep banging away. Next question. No update. Good, thank you. Right away, we have to thank DJ Steve Porter for putting that clip of the John Tortorella press conferences on YouTube. Uh, That's hilarious. We wanted to start the show off (laughs) with that. Welcome to the Sportscasters, Season 2, Episode 19. It's May 15, 2012, and I couldn't be more excited about the show today. Uh, It's it's kind of a baseball-heavy show, but it's going to be awesome. On the show, future Major League Baseball Hall of Famer John Smoltz, Don. It's awesome. Also, the guy that everyone told us doesn't do podcasts, especially yours, Tom Verducci is going to make his second appearance on the podcast. And also, uh, a friend of ours, Chris Baylord, a writer for SI and SI.com, is going to be on to talk about his book, One Shot at Forever, A Small Town, An Unlikely Coach, and a Magical Baseball Season. So we're loaded to the gills with great guests today. As we were last week, I yep. want to mention uh, Season 2, Episode 18, which you can still get on our website, www.sports-casters.com, on Stitcher Radio, and on iTunes. We had Frank DeFord, uh, as I put it, one of the faces on the sports media Mount Rushmore, so right, to speak. Right, right. Uh, Frank, Frank DeFord was on the program. Also, John Wertheim, uh, one of our favorite guests, and Dan Wolken from The Daily was on the show. You can fil- still find that on our website, www.sports-casters.com. Also, don't forget about our other podcast. Uh, Football Nation. Football Nation presents the Sportscasters. Last week, we had Greg Cassell, whose uncle was Howard Cassell. He spent the last 32 years in NFL films. We got to talk a little bit about that great company and all the great stuff that they do. And this week on the podcast, we have Chris Burke, who was last on this podcast live from Indianapolis Super Bowl week. Uh, so we catch up with Chris about what's going on at the Audible's blog at SI.com. So we have a great show for you today. John Smoltz, Tom Verducci, Chris Ballard. Let's get right to it and start things off with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. (laughs) This is the funnest night ever! (laughs) Did we just become best friends? Yep! Now let's move on to other business. All right. 
on ESPN.com today. Maybe not our favorite website. I think we lean a little bit towards the SI side of things. But Rick Riley, former Backpage columnist at SI, has a really great column about Michael Phelps. And basically he reveals that the greatest living swimmer wants out of the water after the London Olympics. Um, Phelps obviously has been training for the Olympics. He's going to compete. But a couple quotes from here from uh, Riley's article. I'm so sick of the water. Even when I go to the beach with my friends, they're like, why don't you get in? And I'm like, do you have any idea how much (laughs) of my life I've spent in the water? Uh, It doesn't sound like he's going to compete in the 2016 Rio Olympics. And honestly, he might not ever compete again. Wow. And his coach, Bob Bowman, thinks thinks that's the case and says, quote, I think he'll be done competitively after London. So as it stands right now, Phelps has 14 medals. How old is he? Do you know off the top of your head? Uh, Phelps is 28. I'm taking a guess there. Let me um, Wikipedia him real quick here. Go ahead. Keep talking. But yeah, no, uh, I was just going to say that, you know, Phelps is what he did at the Olympics last time was so exciting. And he's not going to top it, right? It's going to be really hard to top. And I think he feels that way. He feels like it's kind of the pressure is kind of coming in on him a little bit. He's also 20. He's 26. So okay, maybe, so he might close. just want to be a kid. You know, he maybe never got that chance. I mean, he was kind of famously right afterward. Yeah. Picture got partying and, weed thing. Right. So maybe he just wants out of the spotlight a little bit, you know, right? I mean, maybe he just wants to, I don't know, pick up some girls or something. Show him his medals. He says me. At 30, swimming? Oh, no. Oh, God, no. At 30, I'll be playing golf every day. There you go. It's good for him. I mean, he's reached the apex of his sport at sure. an age. He's earned his money. And now the guy, to me, he's he's been an American hero. I think he deserves this. Good for him. God bless. Have a great long retirement. And I'm looking forward to watching Michael Phelps swim at the Olympics this summer. That'd be a swan song. And if that's the last time, I, I you know, good for him. All right. I started uh... – I take my notes here and I started labeling my stories. So this story is the I don't want to play against girls story. And uh, bullshit. Yeah, we talked last week about a girl or a, a man who was a man, a boy that wasn't allowed to play field hockey anymore after all his time playing right. field hockey and maybe how he was unfairly kicked out. Well, the tables have turned a little bit here and there's a 15-year-old girl from Mesa, Phoenix named Paige Saltzbach who her and her male teammates were going to play a game for the championship. And rather than play the game, the other team that they were scheduled to play, I believe this was uh, last Thursday, forfeited the game because they didn't want to face a female player. Now, so weak. Her mother was quoted as saying, this is not a contact sport. It shouldn't be an issue. It wasn't that they were afraid they were going to injure her. It's that they believe a girl's place is not on the field. Now, that's the mother's comment. Those might be a little heated. I don't know. The official Our Lady of Sorrows, who declined comment in this article, their official statement was, the schools said their decision to forfeit was consistent with a policy prohibiting co-ed sports. So I don't know what that policy is, but uh, the statement also says that schools teaches boys to respect teaches boys respect by not placing girls in athletic competition where, quote, proper boundaries can only be respected with difficulty. 
Ridiculous. I, I don't buy it. This is ridiculous. This isn't a matter of you shouldn't compete with... I mean, if there's ever going to be a professional female athlete in a male-dominated sport, I imagine it would be something like baseball, where maybe she's not going to be a home run hitter, but maybe she can hit for average and just be fast and on base and field well and make a team that way. This is not This is nothing to do with competition. Uh, apparently, she sat the other two games out against this team during the regular season. And I heard the coach address that. He said it was earlier in the season. Right. It was an opportunity to get some other people some playing time. So they respected the other schools. But they're not going to give away the championship because of it. No, and they don't want to make this girl who's played for them all season sit out of the championship game. So to steal Dave Damashek's thing, uh, shame on this school. That That's embarrassing. That rule needs to be looked at because Title IX is a real thing. And in some cases, a a valuable thing for girls that can't play on other sports. I don't believe her team had a softball game or softball team. So she just wants to play. She happens to be a decent player. You know what, by the way, if I was a senior on the team that forfeited. Yeah. And I had to watch my baseball career end because my school has a problem with the second baseman on the other team being a female. Yep. I would be pissed off. Yeah, it's 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 really an embarrassment, and Lady of Sorrows, uh, check yourself. Brutal. All right, my second story. Congratulations to VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University. was in the uh, Final Four a couple of years ago. They're led by Shaka Smart, one of the brightest young coaches in college basketball. They're moving on up in the basketball world. They're leaving the Colonial Athletic Association to join the Atlantic 10. For the 2012-2013 school year, they announced that today at a press conference. Um, basically, they said that Premier Universities are Premier across the board, and that includes athletics. Uh, they're excited to be in what the Atlantic 10 describes themselves as the Premier Basketball-driven conference. Um, now, VCU doesn't have a football team, right? Uh, not a... It not one that competes not a division at the division one, one, it's like one a club level. team or something. Um, so they're leaving uh, CAA that forfeits about five million dollars in shares due to them over the next six years of victories in the NCAA tournament. But they said the move is worth it. Um, they'll pay a two hundred fifty thousand dollar exit fee. Uh, but <laughs> college is ridiculous. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> good for VC- yeah, good for them. Good for VCU. They have an enrollment of more than thirty one thousand students. Um, so they're in a good league, which Richmond is in as well. So they'll have a nice should help uh, the recruiting rivalry there. Should help recruiting, and it takes a little pressure in the CAA. Sometimes you have to win the conference to make the tournament. Right, Atlantic Ten often gets at large bids. It's going to be more room for that. Actually, the CAA has had just four at large bids um, in a span since 2000, where the wow. Atlantic Ten has had 20. Wow! Yeah. So good for uh, Shaka Smart and VCU, leaving the CAA for the A-10. My second thing this week, I don't watch a ton of basketball, uh, and here's part of why. The refereeing is brutal. I know people, this is coming from a guy that watches hockey, but if you can, if you, can, if you didn't see it, look at the Clippers highlight of Reggie Evans and Blake Griffin high-fiving after Evans draws a foul. Uh, they happen to do it kind of over another player, 
but there's no malicious intent. It's not even all that aggressive of a high five. Uh, they didn't smack hands overly hard. That drew a technical. I've never heard of a player getting a technical for a high five. It's it's terrible. And this is the same referee that gave uh, Rondo lots of trouble. Ended up Rondo ended up bumping him and getting suspended, which you should have been. You can't bump referees, but refereeing in basketball is awful. It isn't getting better. Uh, well, you know, here's the thing: like when it comes to when it comes to refing, you just want you don't want to even know you don't want to know the refs' name. Right? Don't make yourself part of the story. Right? You want the refs to just be out of it. And I think when you get into a story like this, get into a point where the refs are just making themselves a part of the game. And you know, the NBA has been to hell and back with you know the roughing scandal that they had with gambling. A few years back, and they need these guys to calm down a little bit. A lot of the games that I've watched, the refs have been too much of a part of it. Yep. Just want to watch these guys play basketball. Back up. Keep the whistle in your mouth. Call the stuff you need to call. Don't get cute. Don't give me this technical for a high five. It's ridiculous. So, and plus, I mean, Clippers. Clippers have got enough problems just being the Clippers. You know, leave them alone. <laughs> right. They're refing and uh. Timeouts. They got to do something about timeouts in basketball. You don't think? I mean, they, you think they have too many timeouts? Uh, not, not enough. Oh, not enough. They need right. more timeouts at the end of the game. All right, uh, basketball story here. We've talked a lot about with uh, Lee Jenkins, some of the other guys we've had. Uh, made official this week, LeBron James, third time MVP of the NBA. Um, he was given the trophy before game one of the series against the Pacers. They're all given headbands with uh, James logo and the letters MVP on them. Pretty sweet. Uh, James is in pretty good company as he's the eighth player to win the award at least three times. Um, the NBA's uh, League of Stars and LeBron is the biggest star. We've talked a lot about on this show about how we've Easy been to hate on. we've been haters in the past when it comes to LeBron. We hated you know being from Buffalo the way he treated Cleveland. We hated the taking the talents thing. But I think LeBron James had a great season, not only on the court, but off the court in terms sure. of rebuilding his image. I've softened on him quite a bit, and I find myself rooting a little bit to see him get a ring because I think he does deserve it. Um, he works hard on, on and off the court, and he's a good guy. He really is. I've, I've seen that more and more. I know he made a mistake, but I'm here to say I'm giving him a pass and moving on. The other thing is he left, and he left Cleveland in a disaster, which led them to get the first pick in the draft, which ended up being Duke's Kyrie Irving, and he was named the NBA Rookie of the Year this year. He had a great season. Um, he, reser- he received 117 of 120 first-place votes. Wow. Um, three times as many. He had three times as many points as the next player. It was Ricky Rubio. Um, and Irving... Here's what I like. I like when the first pick comes out and is the best player. Sure. You know, I always I always feel bad when a guy ends up being a bust. You know, I know that there can be a lot of pressure on these guys. But it seems like it worked out. Basketball's a game of stars, and it seems like Cleveland has a young star in the making in Kyrie Irving, named Rookie of the Year. And I thought that was a little interesting symmetry with LeBron James winning his third NBA MVP. So we're going to talk more after we talked to John Smoltz about the NBA and the NHL playoffs. But I just wanted to, in three things, acknowledge that the MVP is out. LeBron James has won it for the third time. And Kyrie Irving is picking up the Cleveland Cavaliers with the Rookie of the Year award. 
All right, my favorite story this week is John Axford, which, uh, first of all, is an awesome name for a closer. He goes by Axe in the media, the Milwaukee Brewer. So let me set this up a little bit. Friday, May 11th, the Cubs are playing at the Brewers, and they have a 5-4 lead, or the Brewers have a 5-4 lead heading into the ninth. So John Axford comes in to record what would be his 50th straight save. 50 games without a blown save. And... uh, he ended up giving up three runs in the ninth, and the, so he blew the save. Basically, the Brewers went on to win the game. Picked them they up. Went, yeah, they tied the game in the ninth. They ended up winning in the thirteenth. Well, in his locker after the game, the media came to talk to him. Obviously, it's a big story. He had all these forty-nine straight saves. Amazing, amazing job there. So he writes a letter to the media in his in play, in his stall in place of his uh, body. It says, "Media." I put my wife into contractions with my performance tonight, so I had to run to the hospital. The streak is over, so now you can talk about it. The luck I've had in the past didn't show up tonight. All I can do is begin another streak and keep my head up. Cliché, cliché, another cliché, gotta go. Love, with a little heart for the O, (laughs) Axe. That's awesome. I'm not a big baseball guy, but I am now a big John Axford guy, and... If you're uh, if you're wondering about the baby, it would be his second son, and his wife is going into premature labor. So his bad performance. She was in the cr- in the crowd, and she lucked out. I guess her doctor was there too. Oh, perfect. Uh, she went into premature labor. Uh, the doctors managed to stop it, and the baby and the wife are doing fine. Wife Nicole and the baby is due on June 28th. So hopefully, you can sit still and have some better performances, and not put his wife in the labor again. Awesome story. It's awesome for Milwaukee, which is a great baseball city. Lost Prince Fielder this year, going into this year to have a star like Axe. You know what I will say about baseball? Sorry. Uh, I'm not a baseball guy. I've said that a lot of times on the podcast before, but it seems like the players are always interesting guys. Like Jim Rome will say that about like NASCAR guys. Like He's not a NASCAR right. guy, but NASCAR drivers are drivers great. Are great. Yep. I've noticed that a lot about baseball guys. They're just real entertaining. Uh, maybe it's because all the free time they have. I don't know. they got to occupy themselves with silliness, but... They do a good job at it, and I'm now a John Axford fan. All right, so that's going to do it for three things today. Uh, we have an awesome show. We're going to take a break in a second. We're going to come back with John Smoltz. After that, we're going to do an update on the NHL NBA playoffs, talk about what's going on with those a little bit. We're going to have Tom Verducci on the show. We're going to update the book club, talk to Chris Ballard, and then end with pick four. So let's take a break. Let's get things going. We'll be right back with the Atlanta Braves Former Atlanta Braves stud. pitcher, stud John Smoltz. Okay, Mr. B, how about it one more time? The greatest fight song in the world, the MSU fight song. Our next guest is from Warren, Michigan, and played college baseball at Michigan State. He was drafted by the Detroit Tigers before being traded to the Atlanta Braves. In Atlanta, he became part of one of the most successful pitching rotations of all time. He is an eight-time All-Star, a World Series champion, and a winner of the 1997 Cy Young Award. After baseball, he began a career in broadcasting, doing color commentary for TBS. He is now a published author, having written his memoir, Starting and Closing, a warm sportscaster's welcome to the great John Smoltz. How are you doing today, John? 
I'm doing good. Well, tiny, tiny correction. I almost played baseball at Michigan State. I was uh, signed to go there, but signed with the Tigers instead. Because you were drafted by Detroit in between the in between the two there. Yeah, I uh, I was Sunday night. Monday was my first class at Michigan State. Sunday night, I signed with the Detroit Tigers, and my life changed, and the rest was history. <laughs> How disappointed were you when uh, when Detroit traded to you, Atlanta? I know. You know, growing up in Michigan, it might have been a little bit of a dream to play for the Tigers. Were you initially a little bit disappointed to end up being traded to Atlanta? I was devastated. I, I didn't know what it all transpired. I didn't know why that was happening. I didn't view it as somebody wanted me. I viewed it as somebody didn't want me. And the greatest move and the greatest thing that ever happened to me in my professional career, I would have never dreamed was about to happen going to the worst organization in baseball. Exactly. I mean, it wasn't long before you got there, and then, you know, Glavin, and then the rotation really got together. You pitched with so many great pitchers in Atlanta, Maddox and Glavin and, and Avery for a period, and many other guys came in and out of the rotation. Who do you think was the best pitcher that you ever pitched with? Well, it's a tie between Maddox and Glavin. Both represented the right and left as good as anybody could, and I think with each to their own had their ability to stay stubborn, had a great change up, their willingness to stay in position to help uh, increase their chances uh, to win a baseball game, spoke volumes of their 300-plus wins that they've amassed. And Greg Maddox um, has the most hardware, of course, with the most Cy Youngs, but uh, Tommy had uh, this incredible sixth game against Cleveland to give us our, our in the reason he was tough in his own right. You know, it's interesting when I think about the comparison between Glavin and Smoltz because you're a great athlete. I mean, I think Tiger Woods has said you're one of the best golfers who's not on the PGA Tour, played basketball in high school. And Tom Glavin is a great athlete in his own right, having been drafted in the NHL and Major League Baseball. Who's a better athlete? Well, the athletic uh, prowess that uh, all of us had, uh, I enjoyed a little bit more of a well-rounded uh, sports. Tommy was great in hockey and baseball. I didn't really play much of the other sports. I love basketball, football, ping pong. So I, I'll try and do anything, and I feel like I can succeed at most. Let's back up a little bit because we did get into the brave stuff a little bit quicker than I wanted. But I, I kind of wanted to start with the book because that's why we were able to get you on. Uh, you wrote the book with Don Yeager. It's called uh, Starting and Closing. Um, what made you think that now was the time to do this book? Well, um, I don't know if now was the right time or, or, or not. It just became the time. Things came together. I met Don Yeager. The opportunity to, to work with him and see his insight. And he, was in, he was just, I guess I'm feeding off of the excitement that he had and the publishers had about the story that I had to tell, which I think is a little unique in itself in the sense that I really focus and try to stress the failures in my life that led me to be who I am and, and continue to motivate me to be at my best. And I think it would have been real easy to write a feel-good book from the starting to the end and talk about the superficial things that exist in a baseball player. But I get to the core of who I was and what I dealt with and how it advanced me in my career and hope to do the same for anybody who's reading this book that might have you know, ill-conceived notions that they've gone as far as they could or they're listening to the world's view of what, what success is. What was the process like? Did you basically just tell the stories to Don and then he turned it into a book for you? Or were you writing chapters and then sending them off and having a, What was the process in the collaboration like between you and Don? 
No, I did very little writing. I did more dictating than anything else. We sat down for hours upon hours, and whether it was around the golf course or whether it was over the phone, we started talking about certain things that are I'm passionate about. He'd ask questions, which would lead to more stories, which would lead to different chapters. And really a unique way that the book came about wasn't, again, starting in the beginning and ending in the end. It was starting at the end and flashing to all different moments in my career that um, you could see had an impactful uh, uh, design to it. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm opinionated in a lot of areas. I, I, I feel strongly about certain things that I believe, and we conveyed that throughout the book. I don't want you to give away the book today, but there are a couple of really cool stories that I read that I thought maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about. And one of those was you talk about in the book how early on with the Braves, uh, you kind of say that Bobby Cox kind of saved your career. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this man had the uh, ability to instill confidence in all his players at certain points when they didn't have it themselves. He had the faith and patience to withstand the gut-wrenching kind of quick decisions when somebody's struggling get them out you know or move them and he just believed in players and for me in 1991 the crux of what i believe is my career the platform for which it could have gone one way or the other i was two and 11 in the first half he saw in me the ability that i had to pitch but couldn't get out of one inning and sooner or later was going to click it did i went 12 and 2 and pitched the three most significant games in braves history and at that point I pitched the clincher at the regular season, the seventh game against the Pirates, and the seventh game of the World Series. All in that year, it was 2-11 and in the first half. I don't know that many managers would have been able to stick their neck out and sustain a guy that was not delivering at the rate that I was not delivering. Was that game 7 in 91 against the Twins, was that the best game you've ever pitched in? Is that the best you think you've I don't ever know. I don't know if it's the best. There's a lot of circumstances that a pitcher will determine whether it is the best. I mean, outwardly, it's the most pinnacle, it's the greatest game in the world to pitch. So game seven, there is no tomorrow. To not give up any runs would typically, I would tend to say that would be my best. But the game that really gnaws at me and probably was the best under a lot of circumstances was game five in 96 against Andy Pettit. I'm coming off the Cy Young year, 260 innings thereabouts in a regular season, another 40 in the postseason, and I had nothing. And when I say nothing, my feeling of, of my stuff was not very good. I gutted and willed my way into a game where I lost one to nothing on an unearned run, inevitably the pivotal game that turned the, the series in the Yankees' favor, and, and they won four games to two. So that's the one that sticks out in me as my most memorable but the obvious choice for most people is Game 7. You know, a lot of people talk about the 14 division titles and only the one title, and there's some maybe negativity surrounding that. But really, it's still one of the greatest accomplishments. I mean, I grew up in Buffalo and saw a team go to four Super Bowls and not win one. But since I've seen no one else go to four straight Super Bowls, and I've seen how difficult that is, how incredibly difficult of a challenge is it and where do you rate that kind of accomplishment to win the division for 14 straight seasons? It's the best of all time, and I think we'll always stand the best of all time. But when you look at today's sports and what have you done for me lately and the end result, it's going to look like not so good. Uh, one championship in 14 of those years. Individually, I break down most of the years and tell why the story is not exactly the way it adds up when you lop them all together. When you flip a coin 14 times, I'm sure it's going to come up more than heads once. And I think that's what most people believe we underachieved and didn't reach the pinnacle of what we should have and we didn't execute as well as we should have. So 
I don't look at it as though as 1996 being the linchpin of what happened for the Yankees that spun them into four out of five world championships. It could have done the same for us. We would have won back-to-back. We, who knows what we would have done. We would have kept the players. So a lot of things in sports spins on one moment, and that moment can determine a lot of where the direction of your organization goes, good or bad. It sounds like the 96 season is the one that you feel really feel like is the one that got away, huh? No doubt. Uh, when you win two games in Yankee Stadium and then come home, you're not supposed to go back. You know, you're not supposed to go back to Yankee Stadium. And uh, not only did we go back, we didn't win another game. And uh, that, to me, is one of those moments that will be forever remembered as an unbelievable opportunity lost. And, um, you know, there were a couple years uh, before that that we could have won. But realistically, we won in 95, should have won in 96. And I, I dare to say we would have won a few more after that. You know, one of the most famous games during that Braves run is the Francisco Cabrera walk-off hit against the Pirates, and uh, Sid Bream scored the winning run. Watching him go around the bases, did you ever think he was going to make it? You know, from where I was, I never saw him go. I I saw the hit. I was in the dugout, or in the clubhouse, and I sprinted as fast as I could out on the field. Never saw the play until one day I saw it on replay and went, oh, that was close. (laughs) That sure was close. Uh you know, it's, uh, a listener wanted me to ask you, and you mentioned winning the World Series. You won it in 95. What was that Indian how, – how much of a challenge was that Indians lineup facing, you know, the 95 Indians? Because that, that was one of their better teams. And I, I think probably as Braves fans will look at some and, and look at that season and say, man, I wish we would have cashed that in. I'm sure the Indians feel the same about 95 and 97 because they had such good teams, such good lineups. What was the challenge in facing that 95 Indians lineup? And that's for one of our listeners. Well, I would argue that uh, we went through the three greatest offensive teams in playoff history. Um, the Colorado Rockies were as scary as anybody. The Cincinnati Reds could absolutely hit. And the Cleveland Indians were the class of the American League. It's from top to bottom. They had just nothing but hitters, and we shut them down. You know, we shut them down to the tone of, of, of giving us a chance to win it. And, you know, they got back again and, and ultimately lost against the Marlins. But, in the fact that we won it in the fa- fashion that we did, one to nothing on a Tom Glavin gem, just speaks to the way we were so close uh, in so many series. But in this one, it only took one win, one run, uh, to win us the World Series. Yeah, and that run was on a Dave Justice home run. And, and Dave Justice had taken a little bit of heat in the press right before that home run for kind of calling out the fans. At, at, what Was that something that was felt in the clubhouse and Justice was the guy who stood up and said it? Or was Justice kind of alone on an island? I mean, what was the uh, what was the team and the relationship with the fans like during this era? Well, no, he wasn't alone. Um, he did speak what maybe a lot of people felt, but he did it pretty pretty out there, you know, and backed it up the home run and he was vilified for it. But, you know, the the thing that um, we'll never understand is certain cities approach their sports teams a little bit differently than, than others. Cleveland with all their sellouts, Boston with all their sellouts, you know, certain cities are more hardcore sports cities where Atlanta is a little bit more transient. I mean, there's not a lot of people from Atlanta. Um, most of the people are from outside the skirts of the city. And when that time of year comes around, it becomes really corporate. It becomes a lot of uh, executives and things to do type thing, and you don't get the 
you don't necessarily get the, the true fan that's coming from two hours away every day to make that trip. Not a, it's not as easy on them as it is for a city that is more to do with the people that are from there, and they really want to, you know, come downtown to be part of, of something great. You talked a little bit about Bobby Cox earlier and how his patience uh, really helped you and, and build your career. One thing he didn't necessarily have a lot of patience for was for umpires. Um, he was uh, he holds the record for uh, all-time ejections. And this is a question for another listener who is wondering, wh- what what did he say to umpires to get kicked out so quickly? Because it seems like he could go up there and be kicked out in five seconds. What was it about the way Bobby approached umpires that maybe rubbed them the wrong way? Well, the biggest thing you can't do is question their strike zone, and that's what usually gets you a ticket out. And when he would question it and push it a little further than most and and basically trying to push the umpire into believing that his pitchers were throwing more strikes than he was calling, that's what would happen. Um, and, and that's basically the, the rule of thumb that umpires don't want to hear is, uh, you know, balls and strikes will get you ejected quickly. And uh, Bobby got ejected a lot. <laughs> you know, we're seeing uh, Steven Strasburg, one of the great uh, players in the major leagues, really come back 100%, if not better, from his Tommy John surgery. And, you know, in 2000, you didn't play. You had the Tommy John surgery, and you came back as a closer. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about that time in your career and how important was the surgery uh, to giving you that next era of your career? I mean, you would have been done without it, right? Uh, it's the greatest surgery of any sports surgeries that I know of that give a player a chance to resume what he loves to do and uh, just the technology and the ability to actually have this surgery be part of pitch has um, revolutionized my career as well as a lot of other people's. John being the first successful surgery at the age of 34, pitched 11 more years after he had his. Certainly he changed as a pitcher in the velocity and the way that he threw, but now guys are actually getting back to their velocity and pitching at a high level after having this surgery take them from away from the game for over a year. You know, you had such great success when you came back in the bullpen. I mean, you had 55 saves one year, 45, 44. But was that a role you were never quite content with? Was it just you couldn't – what was it that made you want to go back to starting? And that was another thing I guess you had to convince Bobby to allow you to do, right? Yeah, I think one of the things that um, – and the irony of all of it, Bobby never wanted me to go to the pen in the first place. And uh, I told him that was my only chance to help the team down the end because starting was not going to be an option. When I came back from Tommy John, I had developed tendonitis and certainly hadn't built up enough strength to be able to do what I needed to do. And then it became my undoing, not by Bobby's standpoint, but by management. They, they saw to it that I would be a, a better fit in the bullpen, and that was the only way I was going to stay with Atlanta. There really wasn't options. So I decided to stay because of Bobby and everything that I love about Atlanta. And, and I became the closer for three years, hoping it would make us better, hoping it would deliver a postseason victory and or two in a World Series championship. And we never got out of the first round. So what I love to do and the structure of what I did, I always wanted to be a starter. And I got a chance to return back to the rotation when they got another closer and, and um, you know, ultimately was able to pitch again. The sportscasters are here with John Smoltz pitcher for a long time in the Atlanta Braves and a new author. His book is called Starting and Closing, and he wrote that with Don Yeager. Uh, After your career, what was it about broadcasting that was attractive to you? Was it just being able to stay in the game and be a part of the game? I guess so. I got a brief uh, 
stint with the playoffs with uh, TBS when I was hurt in 2008 at the end of the year, um, with my eyes still wanting to go back to pitch, and and certainly I did go back to pitch. And then when the opportunity presented itself with TBS and MLB Network, I jumped at it. I, I thought it was a great transition to what would be uh, who knows how long, you know. And I just uh, have enjoyed it ever since. Um, what's in the future for John Smoltz? Well, um, a lot of plans that I've had have been altered and changed by the good Lord, but I think if I have an opportunity to pursue golf, I want to do that. I want to take it to the level that I possibly can take it to, and that hopefully will resolve resound in a uh, senior tour event or two. Uh, so I turn 45 here pretty in the next, next 24 hours, and I want to try to get five more years and uh, to see what I can see how good I can get. How come you're not on Twitter? I don't believe in that. I'm just not a guy that uh, works with that kind of technology. <laughs> not for you, huh? No. So Tiger Woods says you're the best golfer that never was a PGA golfer. Who are some other really great golfers that you love to play with that aren't PGA players? Well, I enjoy anybody who loves the game and can play it at a relatively fast pace. Uh, you know, I've gotten to meet a lot of great people through the game of golf, both through charities and the corporate events, and and anybody who uh, it's my form of relaxation. I really enjoy it. Um, and if without it, I guess you know, time would be filled uh, uh, with other things. But I certainly enjoy the the opportunity to try and master a sport, unmasterable. <laughs> that's uh that's a great way of putting it john this has been a real honor for us to have you on the show um i grew up as a, a braves fan in buffalo because i could watch the braves you know it was before extra innings and, and tbs really brought me to the braves and uh it was an honor to watch you and, and glavin and maddox pitch all those years and we really appreciate you taking out the time to be on the show so thank you very much all right thanks for having me thank you All right, we have to thank John Smoltz for being on the podcast. You know, Don, for me, since we've been doing this, we've had Deuce McAllister on the podcast. Right. And now we've had John Smoltz, both of whom are athletes that I've been really big fans of. And I have to say, I really, really enjoyed the Smoltz interview, probably more than the McAllister one, because it just felt like from the beginning we really had Smoltz's attention, and I had a lot of fun talking to him, so I really appreciate Harper Collins, first of all, for making that happen, publisher, the book right. publisher, and uh, thank John for being on the show. Okay, uh, we're just gonna real quickly since we didn't. This show is so baseball heavy. We still want to find a, some time to talk about what we've been watching with the NHL and the NBA playoffs the last couple of weeks. The NHL is down to four. The NBA is down to eight. Uh, the NBA. Let's start with that and just do it real quick because neither of us are the biggest basketball fans. But the NBA ended up having. Two game sevens in its first round. Both of the L.A. teams uh, were forced to a seventh game. The Clippers by the Grizzlies and the Lakers by the Nuggets. Yeah, messed up both of our predictions. Well, for yeah, season. sure did. So what we have left basically is the Clippers and Sa- uh, San Antonio. They're going to face off tonight. Game one tonight. Game one. Yeah. Um, Oklahoma think, City and the – oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say I, I really think that the Spurs should be able to take care of the Clippers. Yeah. I think this is a good season for the Clippers to build sure, on. Right. Got a playoff victory for the first time in a long time. 
but I think that the Spurs probably will be too much to handle. The other Western Conference best of seven series started last night, and wow, did Oklahoma City blow the doors off the Lakers. They routed them. The final was 119-90. to The game probably wasn't even that close. Oklahoma City looks like they are on an absolute mission, and the Lakers, if they're going to even challenge the Clippers in this series, are going to have to wake up. They didn't look great at the end of the Nuggets series. They kind of survived Game 7. I watched most of Game 7. The Lakers got out to a decent lead. Then the Nuggets made a huge run, and the Lakers were lucky enough to hold on at the end. But Oklahoma City's been dominant this year. They have. They've They've had a great season. Wire to wire, they've been, what, at worst, maybe the third best team in the league? Right. I mean, they've been right there with Sacramento all season. Or, excuse me, San Antonio all season. Right, right. For the number one seed in the Western Conference. Ended up with number two. Uh, but you know, as much as Los Angeles would probably like a Lakers and Clippers Western Conference final, yeah, that'd be cool. I think that it's going to really be Oklahoma City and San Antonio. I think that's going to be a great Western Conference final. In the East, Boston and Philadelphia have already played two games of their series. Yeah, it's strange. And the spread right now is two total. Yes, differential Both in the two one, games. One game wins. Uh, Boston wins. won their game, ninety-two to ninety-one, and Philadelphia fought back and won their game, eighty-two, 82 to eighty-one. 81. Right. So that's a really good series so far. Game three is Wednesday night, the sixteenth, uh, and then they play the eighteenth, game four. As that series shifts to Philadelphia for two games, you know, Philadelphia is kind of the weird, a weird city in that their basketball team might be the least popular team in the city. Yeah, maybe. You know, the Flyers are, are a really strong hockey market. Eagles are the Eagles. Eagles are NFL, always the biggest. Right. And they're really a great baseball town with sure, the Phillies. Yeah. But the city's going to have a chance to focus on Philadelphia. And Boston and Philadelphia is one of the all-time classic NBA rivalries. So it's always cool when those two teams play each other in the playoffs. And that series is tied at one. The other series, Indiana versus Miami. Indiana could be the best team this year. They got to play Orlando without Dwight Howard, and now they're catching Miami without Chris Bosh, who has an abdominal injury. Sounds like he's done for the series. He's out what they're describing as indefinitely, but he doesn't need season-ending surgery like Don said. It looks like he's out for the series. Miami won game one, 95-86, and what was a really big night in Miami for LeBron getting the MVP trophy. But that's kind of where we're at in the NBA uh, if I were to make some predictions from this point, I'd probably say I like San Antonio versus Oklahoma City, and I'll take Miami versus Boston. Be a great Final Four for the NBA. And ultimately, I hope this thing is going to wind up with uh, a really awesome showdown between two of the great stars in the league in Durant and James. Not yeah. taking anything away from Tim Duncan, who we're going to talk about with Chris Ballard later. But I think I just would really love to see Oklahoma City and Miami. That's a final that, as a casual basketball fan, I think would bring me to the television. Yeah, you mentioned LeBron, and I, I didn't know whether to bring this stat up earlier or or in our three things or now, and I saved it for now because it is playoff-related. But just to show how good he is, I mean, people, casual fans, you might think that uh, star players are just the flashy guys that dunk and can shoot from anywhere. LeBron really is better known for his passing and defense, and he really had that on display in Game 1. Uh, the NBA.com gave a great stat next to uh, their in their series page for that series, and it says 37.7 was the number they give, and that was the Pacers' field goal percentage with LeBron on the floor versus 62.5% when wow. he was on the bench. So unbelievable. They shoot 
half as well as they do when he's on the floor. Unbelievable defense. Um, yeah, I think I agree with all the predictions you made, and I feel kind of like the the championship might be decided in the Western Conference championship game. You kind of lean towards the San Antonio. Yeah, unless unless Bosch can get healthy, I just think Oklahoma City is just a stacked team. I mean, yeah. I if you go think ahead of our pick four, I rid that, rode them all year when I needed like a win yeah, for something. Absolutely, Oklahoma City was they were they're just automatic. Switching gears more into our comfort zone a little bit, the National Hockey League said they're down to four. Since we've been on the air last, there was a pretty exciting Game 7 between the Rangers and the Capitals. Yep. Uh, Rangers win their second Game 7. The Western Conference Finals got started on Sunday in Phoenix. Strange place for it to be. Yeah. And the Kings were awesome in the game. They really were. Uh, they look like the favorite to win it all. They really do. They're Undefeated on the road, yep. still. Um, they've only had the one loss, which was Game Four at home to Vancouver. Game they probably could have won too, and they're just loaded. I don't know how they're probably the most puzzling eight seed of all time. When the fact you that they see, landed at the eight seed, right? When you see what they have, and when you see it all together, Captain Dustin Brown's been playing great. And Drew Doughty is just an absolute superstar. Watching that guy's unbelievable. That came down to like the last day or the second to last day too for yeah. them to make it even into the playoffs. Yeah, I mean they could have went as high as third. They ended up eighth. Could have even ended up out. Out right. Um, it's going to be tough for the Coyotes. Coyotes really need to win tonight. Uh, oh, yeah. As we're oh, recording yeah. this, game two is at nine o'clock on uh, the fifteenth or Tuesday, and it's a huge. It's a huge game for Phoenix. You do not want to go back to LA. Get into a situation where even if you split in LA, you're f- going to be facing elimination the rest of the series. Right, and then you got to beat Jonathan Quick, and I mean, good luck. Uh, like you said, the Devils or the Rangers and Devils started their series. The Rangers won three nothing, but it wasn't an exciting three nothing. Was game. not a great hockey game. Pretty boring three nothing. Decent game. third period. Uh, Henrik Lundqvist is getting a lot of the praise. He's not facing many shots. Look, no, they block half of them. He's a he's a good goalie. For sure, maybe a great goalie, but I mean a, a twenty-one here's, something like that. Here's what I'll say about Longquist: is he makes phenomenal saves. Yeah, when it does break down and it's point blank, he comes up huge. Like I think he watches his guys block shot after shot after shot, and is like, okay, when they make a mistake, I need to be there to pick him up, and right. that's what he's great at. Martin Brodeur, it's going to be interesting to see if he can equal Longquist because Brodeur hasn't been great in the playoffs the last few seasons. No. Devils have kind of coasted a little bit in this playoffs. I think this is by far the best team they've played. And I don't know. I feel like I feel like the things are tilting right for the NHL, and it's going to be what they want, and it's going to be L.A., and it's going to be New York, and it's going to be one of the most – Talked about and anticipated NHL finals sure. for as long as I can remember. Yeah, I think the bigger one if you're the NHL to root for is the Kings making it in. I know they're not as big a market as New York, but New York tends to be an all-right hockey market anyway, whereas L.A., probably a lot of people are just waking up to the fact that they still have a team. So L.A. is one of those cities where it's like their, their arena's packed, but usually it's packed with like just about every fan they have. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? But, I mean, the L.A. sports market is spread real thin. You know, and sure, they there's a second hockey team in Anaheim. You know, and it's still there's a cool the two story. basketball teams. Yeah, and all 
all of those teams that play in that arena are still in it, so it's they're going to play cool six. Story. They're going to play six games in four days in that arena coming up, and also they're going to play a hockey game before a basketball game there, which is dangerous because a hockey game can go for a long time. Oh I guess yeah, the NBA is already making plans with the with TNT, who's going to be the broadcast partner of that. It's going to be a Clippers game to be that ready, night. Ready whenever. If there's one overtime, they're going to push it back one hour. Two overtimes, they're pushing back two hours. Through overtime, they're going to push it back all the way to 10 o'clock Eastern time. Wow. So it's something interesting to watch. The Kings and Coyotes could really screw the NBA up there. So at three overtimes, they push it back to 10 o'clock? Yeah, that Has would there be been a three-hour delay. Game? There hasn't been this year, but there has been in the, in past. the past. And then what? They probably cancel it? I yeah, I guess. I mean, their schedule is already wonky. Like we said, there's teams that haven't started yet, and there's other teams that are getting ready for their third game. Right. So... That's all we wanted to do, just kind of quickly go over what's going on in the uh, playoffs, and we'll probably do this right through the finals. Uh, so we're going to take a break, and I know we've said this before, and maybe we're bordering on being a little dickish and kind of rubbing it in, <laughs> but there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, what's the word, um, we feel, vil- I'm, I'm stumbling on the word, but we feel... Like, we were told that this guy was never going to be here, and now he's been here twice, and that means a lot to us. Because we know for a fact... He's been good, too. Yeah, it hasn't it, been him. No, we were told by uh, SIPR, basically, right, not to expect Tom Verducci to be on your show, because look at I try to get him to go on Mike and Mad Dog, and he turns that down. And that said, SI has always been good to us, too. They're great to us. He wasn't being mean. No. He was, I think, being realistic. I think that's what he thought. And we'd put the work in and put the time in to get him here, and it's his second time. So let's take a break and come back with Tom Verducci. Our next guest is from East Orange, New Jersey, and is a graduate of Penn State. We're here in the BA in journalism. He spent 10 years serving as a sports reporter for Newsday. For three of those years, he was Newsday's national baseball columnist. In 1993, he joined Sports Illustrated, where today he is a senior writer and one of the magazine's top baseball writers. In 2006, Sports Illustrated published a book full of his best columns called Inside Baseball. In 2009, he co-authored a book with Joe Torre called The Yankee Years. Today, he lives in suburban New Jersey and has also began a career in television. During the baseball playoffs, he's a field reporter for TBS, and he often appears on various programs on the Major League Baseball Network, where he serves as a baseball insider. Today, he is making his second appearance on the Sportscasters. A warm welcome to the great Tom Verducci. How are you doing today, Tom? Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really excited to have you on what is basically a, a really exciting show, mostly about baseball for us today. We had Tom Verducci, or your Tom Verducci. We had John Smoltz on before you, and after you, we're going to have Chris Ballard, who has a really phenomenal baseball book out. So it's really a great day just to talk baseball. And I guess where I want to start is we're you know into May now, and uh, early is starting to get late in the in the baseball season. And I guess the first thing I want to know is uh, kind of try to see baseball through your eyes. What has kind of surprised you? or interested you about the first couple months of the season here? Well, there's been a lot of surprises. Uh, it's only taken a month and a half to realize that a lot of our expectations going into the season 
just haven't held up already. Uh, surprise teams, whether you want to count the Baltimore Orioles or Cleveland Indians, the Washington Nationals, in the L.A. Dodgers has been a little bit of a surprise, but on the field as well, in terms of individual performances, we have a perfect game, a no-hitter, a four-home run night. Uh, and it's just amazing to see already the storylines that have developed, the most of them we didn't see coming. You mentioned the four-home run night, and uh, I don't know, I'm just a big fan of Josh Hamilton and his story, and I've been really, uh, really enjoying the season that he's been having, which is almost Ruth-like. Um how do you see the negotiations between Hamilton and the Rangers playing out? Because it, it could be really interesting with the risks that are involved in him, but the on-field success. Do you think ultimately that that's the best place for him? Or, or how do you see the Hamilton issues playing out? Well, I think usually that your incumbent team is always the best place for a player, especially when you've got a team that's a two-time defending American League champion and right now is the best team in baseball with an incredible fan base, um, great revenues um, that are uh, already in place going forward in terms of the local TV revenues. So there's no doubt that that's the best place for him, but that doesn't take into account whatever their contract offer may be. And as we've seen with Albert Pools, who had a lot of things going for him in St. Louis, you know, sometimes uh, you don't get the contract or the money that you want. And for Josh Hamilton, this will be his biggest contract ever and probably his last chance to take a big bite of the salary apple a year. So uh, there's no doubt he's going to get paid. I think length of contract is going to be the biggest factor for Josh given his, his injury history. But I also think that we have to just wait. And what's going on now is really just media speculation. There's nothing happening in terms of anything in, in real time with the Rangers and Hamilton in negotiations. Uh, it'll happen in, in November, uh, late November. We'll start to talk about numbers and exchanging proposals. And if you remember last year about this time, we were talking about the Mets and Jose Reyes, who looked like the MVP of the National League, and how much the Mets were going to have to pay Reyes, and would it be Carl Crawford money. And, you know, Reyes went down with an injury to his hamstring, not once, but twice. And he did well, but he didn't get the kind of numbers that people thought. And I think there's still a lot of baseball ahead of us, three-quarters of the season, for Josh Hamilton to play. So it's, I understand it's a great issue to talk about in the media and where is, the numbers might go. Um, but the fact is what will matter is how it plays the rest of the season and, and where the, the contracts go in November. You know, last night was a really interesting game to watch between Texas and Los Angeles because the whole country got to see uh, Josh Hamilton and the way he's playing. And then you get to see the opposite of Pujols and, and his struggles. Do you think we're seeing a natural decline from Pujols, or do you just think we're seeing pressure and the way pressure can get to an athlete when you know no home runs in five games turns into ten games and then so on? Well, there has been a little bit of a decline in Albert's game in the last two years. Uh, certainly nothing in terms of this magnitude we've seen this year. Um, but I do think it's a, a, there's a whole host of factors. I mean, there are, it's, it's like a recipe with a million different ingredients. It's not any one thing. It's, it's everything combined. And I'm not sure that any one ingredient is more important than any other. You talk about changing teams. You're talking about changing leagues as well. He's seeing pitchers that he just doesn't have a, a database on for the most part. Uh, you know, I think the fact that uh, he wants to win so well and the team is not winning. I think if the team were winning and he was not hitting – 
don't think this slump would have lasted as long, but I think he's taken on a burden and a responsibility to be the face of the franchise, and that hasn't happened, and that's created more uh, anxiety and tension for Albert Pujols. Um, and, and I just think mechanically now he's in a very bad place. I mean, I, I mentioned some of the stories that we didn't think we'd see this year. I think of all the unexpected stories, the strangest one of all is to see Albert Pujols slumping and the way that he has been slumping. This is not a case of a guy hitting a lot of balls hard and not having anything to show for it. This is a guy who just looks completely uncomfortable at the plate. And um, for a guy who I think is the best hitter of this generation, I got to tell you, it's a very strange sight to see. You'll see Albert take bad swings every once in a while, but for a month and a half, it's just mind-boggling. You know, it's interesting, too, because you made the comparison to how if we were talking last year with the Reyes contract compared to Hamilton. Maybe if we were doing this interview one year ago today, we might be talking about Derek Jeter and the way he was slumping for the Yankees. I know the topic last year was, you know, is Derek Jeter washed up? It seemed like he got the 3,000th hit and things went from there. And he's really played unbelievable this year. It's maybe even one of the best seasons he's ever had so far. What have you seen in Jeter uh, that makes you think that he's had this kind of renaissance this year? Well, I mean, he's a special player. I mean, that goes without saying, but... You know, I look back on guys like Paul Molitor, Cal Ripken, um, uh, David Ortiz was in this category a couple of years ago. You cannot write off good players quickly. You know, that the fact that they became great players means that they have something else that others don't besides ability. And, and I think Derek is just one of those guys that until he admits that he's done, you know, who are we to say that he's done? Uh, mechanically, the biggest thing was that he was a bad place at the start of last year. He tried some swing changes in the offseason and spring training, never got comfortable with them. And really, it was a blessing for him when he had a calf injury. He wound up going down to Florida to rehab and, and hooking up with his original hitting coach, Gary Denbo. And he went back to hitting the way that he has done his whole career. And remember, he had hit with this new approach in spring training, so he really didn't have a spring training as he normally would. It was trying to learn something completely different and new. So I think going down to Florida and getting himself back to the same position he was in mechanically really is exactly what he needed. And that's hard to do during the season unless, as happened with Jeter, that you're unable to play and you have time to get away from the grind and the, right. and the performance-driven major league games. And I think we've seen him not just hot, but uh, really having a renaissance through his career because especially middle infielders, they do not age well in their late 30s. And I, right now what we're seeing from Jeter is a guy who doesn't look like he's in decline at all. Yeah, we saw Andy Pettit, uh, who's kind of linked to Jeter in a lot of ways, return to the Major League Baseball yesterday. Did you get a chance to see him pitch at all? And what do you think he can contribute to the Yankees this year? You know, Andy Pettit was a nice addition because we know he's battle-tested in New York, and it's always a question you have to ask when players come to New York and they get it done in that environment. But also I think you have to remember when he retired, it wasn't because of an arm injury and it wasn't because he lacked stuff. You know, There's really nothing wrong with his arm, nothing wrong with his stuff. Now, I will say, though, that people should temper their expectations. Andy Pettit is not a number two pitcher at this point in his career. Um, he's basically going to be a six-inning pitcher, and, you know, he's not going to strike out as many as he did before. The big question for me now is how he holds up pitching every fifth or sixth day. And by that, I mean, really, it's the body and the legs, especially legs and back as you get to 39 and 40. 
it's the cumulative effect of, of pitching every fifth or sixth day. So I think the second half of the season is going to be really interesting for Andy, but if you look at Andy as a guy to add to somebody's rotation out of, say, the fourth spot, I mean, what a huge addition for the Yankees. So uh, as long as he holds up, and I think he will, but I think there'll be times we'll have to back off Andy Pettit. Um, it's exactly what this rotation needed. Speaking of holding up, do you think Baltimore can hold up? I mean, I never expected them to be 22 and 13 and ahead in an absolutely difficult division. Is it about schedule for them, maybe? Have they played a weaker schedule? Or, or what is it about this team that has gotten them to this point and can they sustain it? You know, they did have a weaker schedule early on, but it really showed me something when they went on the road to New York and Boston and won five out of six. Traditionally, this team has just gotten crushed by the Yankees, the Red Sox, and the Rays. And to me, that was a statement that um, they're not the they're not the homecoming opponent that they always have been in the American League East. Now, I don't think they can hold up in terms of a team that's going to the playoffs, going to win 90 plus games in the toughest division in baseball. That's asking a whole lot based on where they're coming from. And I think their bullpen has been a lot better than people expected this early in the season. I don't know if that will hold up, but bullpens are difficult to predict from year in to year out. Good ones are the ones you think you are good turn out to be bad, and some of the ones that you don't know the names or certainly don't spend a lot of money on turn out to be good. So that, that's hard to predict, but I think holding up over the course of the season, I still think the pitching is going to come back down to, you know, certainly not the level they're at now. But I will say this. I don't think this team is going to crater, and we're going to be sitting there in August saying, you know, boy, that start by the Orioles seems like forever ago. Um, you know, Buck Schalter has got this team playing in the right way, and I think when you look at guys like Matt Wieters and Adam Jones, you know, they've elevated their games. They're maturing into not just really good players, which they were already, but really franchise-type players. So, uh, you know, I look at the Orioles as a team that can finish with a winning record and certainly be in the mix for a second wild card. The sportscasters are here with Tom Verducci. A couple minutes left. You know, Tom, maybe the most exciting night of the baseball season was a couple of maybe about a week or so ago, and it was uh, the Dodgers and the Nationals were playing, and Matt Kemp hit a walk-off home run. Uh, Bryce Harper had a really exciting game. It was just a great night to watch baseball in L.A. And I was thinking about Matt Kemp, and I was thinking about Major League Baseball and kind of the struggles that they've had to attract African-American ballplayers. Is Matt Kemp really a guy that they should get behind and and really push and market. I mean, he's got a high-profile girlfriend. He plays in a high-profile market, and he's an unbelievable player. Does he represent a hope for Major League Baseball to maybe attract more African-American players as they move forward here? Oh, sure, of course. I mean, he is definitely a marketable player. Um, But, you know, we've seen this with guys like Jimmy Rollins and Ryan Howard doing it for a World Series-winning Philadelphia Phillies team, uh, a team that did win back-to-back pens. Um, you know, Matt Kemp is yet to play in a World Series. That's when your profile really, really begins to grow. Um, so I don't think it's anything that's really that different or new, but I do think it's an opportunity. There's no question about it um, because Matt Kemp really is a star player. There's no question about that, who has a great personality. is uh, a dynamic kind of player. You know, it's interesting. About a year ago about this time, I was lamenting just personally that baseball didn't have a drawing card. There were not individual players that people really wanted to see. And now you look up in the game today, and certainly Matt Kemp, Josh Hamilton, Steven Strasburg, Bryce Harper, and Hugh Darvish are 
you know, basically appointment television type players. And it's a huge change in the game. We went from really no drawing cards to at least five um, that people really wanted to see. Now, when I say no, I think, you know, maybe Tim Lentica might have been in that group. But for the most part, baseball lacked really, really compelling players. Talented players, yeah, but compelling players, no. And I think with Darvish and especially Harper and Strasburg and Washington, guys who just weren't on the on the radar last year at all, you're looking at a great opportunity for baseball to attract all kinds of kids and fans. Um, so I think it's important that it's Matt Kemp or Hamilton or Darvish, all of these guys, and Harper especially because he's so young, getting young kids involved in the game. Um, baseball traditionally sells teams and it sells across regions, but if you can have individuals that you can sell nationally, that's where a big payoff comes. What will you be looking for between now and the All-Star break? What are some maybe teams or stories or players that you're going to be interesting to see how pan out between now and when we kind of get our next kind of deep breath at the All-Star game? Well, I think Hamilton really bears watching here um, to see how long he can stay hot. And we know he's great, but when you see a great player hot, then you may be looking at something historic. Um, so I think when he brings the home run record into play, the possibility of the triple crown, uh, that's something that you're going to follow on a day-to-day basis. You know, sort of off the radar, I-, I would say a guy like Mike Trout with the Angels, uh, who has a great package of skills in terms of speed and power, and he's just 20 years old. Uh, if you're interested in watching the, the, the growing up, if you will, of a young star, um, not just Bryce Harper, but I think Mike Trout really bears watching there as well. Um, and as far as teams go, I think the Dodgers are really interesting because a year ago and maybe even a couple of months ago, they looked like a franchise that was adrift. They had to go into bankruptcy. And now here they are with new ownership, Magic Johnson involved, and a really, really good team that, though, by the way, played really well at the end of last year and has carried that over. Um, last few years, baseball has really missed out on opportunity because the franchises in New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles have all been downtrodden, nondescript franchises for a year or more. Um, and now to get some of those crown jewels back again playing well, especially the Dodgers, uh, you know, that, that means a lot for baseball nationally. Last thing, are we any closer to getting you on Twitter? Uh, not that I know. Of. If you hear <laughs> anything, you can let me know. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Verducci. We really appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right, we want to thank the great Tom Verducci for making time to be a part of the Sportscasters, which is really a great baseball show today. Already we've had John Smoltz on the show and Tom Verducci. And going forward, it's the book club update today. And we got a whole stack of books kind of to talk about this month. Yeah, I see what five over there. And you know what? We're built, what we're building towards, we're collecting. We're going to have a book club show where we're going to talk about we're going to kind of review the books. We're going to do it kind of in conjunction for Father's Day because I know Peter King kind of spearheaded this idea. We're kind of stealing it from him. And that is kind of making Father's Day a time to kind of reflect on the year and what was sports books. And also, I, it's a great – I never know what to get my dad for Father's Day. And I think a sports book is a great gift for a dad who's inclined to love sports. We're going to have a bunch of different books to give away. Um, for that. So that'll be in a couple of weeks, probably the first week of June. We'll probably do that where we'll kind of clear out the bookshelf a little bit and make available 
a bunch of different books for you guys to potentially win. And maybe instead of having to buy your father a gift for Father's Day, <laughs> can you can give him a book you want. All right, so there's a bunch of books to go over. The first one is a book that you can only buy at www.nhlgms.com. The book is called Behind the Moves, NHL General Managers Tell How Winners Are Built. A guy named uh, Jason Ferris organized the book, and the book is – the foreword is written by Brian Burke, who's the GM of the Toronto Maple Leafs. It's a beautiful book. It's numbered. It's a big coffee table book. Uh, We have number 17 of 150. It's autographed by Neil Smith former general manager of the Rangers, we won't be giving this away. Uh, we're going to keep this one for ourselves. No, it's hard to describe, but uh, really to call a book, I mean, it is really, really nice looking. It's a pricier book, so I mean, if yeah, you've got a little bit deeper pockets, go out there, but for sure, check it out. It, yeah, it costs 100 bucks. If, ho- if you're a hockey nerd, if you love the stuff like the trade deadline, uh, it, it's worth checking out for sure, but it is a really... I don't often look at a book and just think how cool it looks, but that is a really cool looking book. Yeah, it's got it's real it's it's black. It's got a silhouette of a, a GM on the phone and with a hockey rink in the background, and they have the uh, Rangers nineteen ninety four Stanley Cup ring. It's large. Neil Smith. It's like a photo book on there. Yeah, it's a coffee table book. Sure, um, but it has a ton of content. It's not just pictures. There's all kinds of content, stuff written from GMs, by GMs. Quotes there's, about other GMs yep, from other GMs. There's tables in here, all kinds of great information. If you're a hockey fan, if you are a fan of the kind of behind-the-scenes side, please go to NHLGMs, GMS uh, is how it's spelled out, .com, and check out Behind the Moves. NHL general managers tell how winners are built. I don't read a lot, and sometimes the publishers will send us multiple copies of books. But this is right. the, this is the first one I was bummed we only got one of because it looks awesome. We will share it though. Okay, speaking of multiple copies, a book that we do have multiple copies of. Yes, book club book of the month, kind of the official book club book of the month this month. We've had a bunch of books to deal with, but the one that we're going to focus on. And we're looking forward to interviewing Mark Cram Jr. for the first time. It's his first book. It's called The Story of Devotion, Like Any Normal Day. It's kind of a sports meets Kevorkian type of story. Right. If that makes any sense. It's heavy. Um, It's sad at times. It's uplifting at times. I've really enjoyed what I've read so far. I'm about... uh, Is it a spoiler to talk about Million Dollar Baby? I mean, it's... It has that feel to it. That's a good. That's a good analogy. Uh, Don and I are both reading this. Um, we're going to have copy or two to give away. Yep. Um, Mark is going to join us on the May 29th show. So that's two more shows from now. We'll have a chance to talk to Mark about his book, like any normal day. Also, if you want to read kind of a question and answer, Alex Belth, our good buddy from the Bronx sponsor Banter blog, right, had Mark. Uh, did a print interview with him that you can read oh, okay. at the the Bronx Banter blog. If you want some more information about the book from Mark before he's on our podcast in a couple weeks, you can go there. Sure. Next book is one that we uh, kind of closed out last week. We had Frank DeFord on the show. It was an honor for Don and I to be able to talk to Frank. And we got some great compliments about the interview on Twitter. And I want to thank everyone for that. 
The book is called Overtime, My Life as a Sports Writer by Frank DeFord. It's great because it's light, it's fun, there's great stories, there's it's an unbelievable amount of content about the greatest athletes of all time that Frank has had a blessed life to be able to cover for Sports Illustrated and Real Sports. And um, it was an honor. So don't forget to check out Frank on episode 18 of this podcast, which was last week's show. You can still find it at our website, www.sports-casters.com. And over time, my life as a sports writer by Frank DeFord, I highly recommend it. Uh, the next book is the one that we talked about earlier on the show yep. uh, with John Smoltz. It's called Starting and Closing. Uh, John writes that with uh, Don Yeager, the ghostwriter. And as John said, the book is a lot about some of the struggles John has had and how he's overcome them. He's uh, really honest in the book. And I'm not going to say too much about it because hopefully you listened to me uh, talk to John about it a little bit earlier in the program. That leads us to our next segment, uh, which is going to be with Chris Ballard, who is a senior writer at SI. Uh, he's someone who's been really good to us since we've started the show. And he's got a book that came out today, uh, May 15th. It's called One Shot at Forever, A Small Town, An Unlikely Baseball, An Unlikely Coach, and a Magical Baseball Season. Let's stop right there and bring Chris Ballard onto the show and talk to him about his book, One Shot at Forever. Our next guest is from Berkeley, California, and is a graduate of Panoma College where he played basketball and was on the track and field team. He went on to study journalism at Columbia University where he earned a master's degree. He spent time interning for the Courier Post in Camden, New Jersey, and has written professionally for the New York Times, USA Today, the Los Angeles Times, Men Health, and other publications. In 1998, he and three other former college basketball players traveled over 31,000 miles to play basketball in 48 states and 166 different cities. Looking to share the experience, he authored a book called Hoops Nation that was named one of book list's top 10 sports books of the year and gained acclaim from publications like the Philadelphia Inquirer. Since he has authored a number of books, including his new book, One Shot at Forever, A Small Town, An Unlikely Coach, and A Magical Baseball Season. In 2000, he joined Sports Illustrated, where today he's a senior writer. He has three times been honored for his work in the Best American Sports Writing Series, was nominated by SI for a National Magazine Award, and has occasionally written the magazine's prestigious back page column called Point After. A warm sportscaster welcome for the second time to one of the most accomplished and distinguished writers to ever appear on the show, Chris Ballard. How are you doing today, Mr. Ballard? Doing great. Thanks for having me back on, Steve. Yeah, really excited to have you on. I mean, we're excited about the book. First of all, it's a crazy time this month for books. I mean, uh, Frank DeFord put out a book. Um, Mark Cram Jr. put out his first book. John Smoltz has a book out. And with it out there on the shelves is your new book, One Shot at Forever. Like I said, and here's what I love about your book, and I wish it happened more. I love when a column that I can recall reading in SI or in some other publication becomes something bigger. How did you know that this column deserved to be something bigger as opposed to the many other columns that you've written that have kind of just died at that stage? Yeah, I think you go into any story 
and you have a sense of how big it can be. And uh, if I'm doing, you know, like a, a NBA feature, often it's going to be a profile, and often you know, okay, I can go this deep with it. There's this much narrative. In this case, this story came to me. With, someone emailed me two and a half years ago at, a, at SI, and they told me a little bit about it. And the more I learned, the more it became apparent there was a lot there. There was a lot of depth. Um, the characters, Lynn Sweet, the, the head coach, she's this sort of peacenik, iconoclastic, charismatic English teacher who comes to this town stuck in the Eisenhower era. Uh, and there's a culture clash there. And just on a human level, it's fascinating to see that unfold. Small town, big city guy comes in. Um, and then the baseball story itself is very Hoosiers-like, and you have that element of uh, following this team at a time before class divisions when they're going uh, all the way through the season and then into the state playoffs and end up playing teams like Lane Tech, which had 5,000 students, all boys, and Macon High School had only 250. So it's a great underdog story. And then the other character, Steve Scharzer, who's this talented player on the team, went from getting drafted by the Cardinals, uh, just a remarkable competitor, yet to this day he is haunted by what happened that season. So when I saw those pieces, I said, you know what, this this would be a great magazine story, and I wrote it about ten thousand words for SI back then. Uh, and then the response came in; it was more mail than we'd received uh, for a bonus story like that. I think in, in years, from what I understand, um, and people were just really, really taken with the story. And you know, I heard from a number of film companies, and that's that's where it sort of hit me that you know that was just part of this story. If I expanded it, uh, I think it could be even more powerful. So. You know, this one I sort of knew from the beginning. A lot of other times, the stories you don't know, you have to get into them, get deeper, and then see the response. This one, I sort of had that sense from the start. You mentioned that you heard from some film producers. Does this feel like one that can even be more than this book? Does this feel one like one that could have a, a screenplay written and, and maybe turn into that Hoosier for baseball someday? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, when the magazine story came out, there was a, a lot of film interest and uh, a company that works with Disney, ended up taking on the project and bringing it to Disney. And they are really pushing for it, and this was a company that had done a bunch of sports movies, uh, like Miracle and The Rookie, which is that Dennis Quaid baseball movie. Um, and so they, were, they loved it, and then the Disney folks, the last one is like, we just can't, we can't do this uh, because the, the team doesn't have the ending we want it to have, and to, to do it, we have to fictionalize it. Other people thought that's part of why the story was so powerful. Uh, so now I'll be curious to see, you know, the book just comes out today, um, May 15th. So I'll be curious to see the reaction. I heard from someone last night from uh, a film production company interested in the book. So, you know, I, I think it'd be great. I think it'd be great to see on screen the people I wrote about. I think we'd get a kick out of that. Um, I think part of the appeal originally uh, to film companies is that Lynn Sweet, the main character, the coach, is such an interesting guy that young actors would love to play someone like that. He just has that kind of depth, and as an actor, you could really get into to playing that kind of character. And, you know, there's so many interesting elements to Lynn. You know, he kind of clashes with the principal. Um, he clashes with the town, you know, and he's not the typical baseball coach. He's kind of reluctant. Is Lynn, like... Was Lynn a really fun character? Did you really have fun like delving into his story? He seems like one of those guys. You said that actors would really like to act him, but isn't it true that he's kind of a guy that writers really would love to write about? Oh yeah, that for me that was the 
the real draw of the story was to have this coach. And I think it also, unlike anyone else who played Little League, I remember everything about my coaches and my high school coaches, and they played such a powerful role in my life. Some for better, some for worse. You know, I had some really bad coaches, and I had a couple. I had one basketball coach that, you know, that really sort of set my path in life to a certain extent. And this was the effect that Lynn had. So in writing about him, uh, he's personally fascinating. The effect he had on the kids was fascinating. And his life was interesting enough uh, that I could create a, a narrative and see how he changed over the course of, of this book and also how he changed his town. So it's probably him changing and how Macon changed because of Lynn Sweet. You know, Steve Schartzer is kind of a different character because, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the beginning he was a bit reluctant. And didn't he say to you that he'll sit down with you and he'll answer anything you want, but he only wanted to do it one time because reliving this story has had such an effect on him so uh, even to this day? Yeah, yeah, and, and Steve is a guy that at this point, you know, after two years, we know each other well and we've had beers together and we're friends, but at first... He was very reluctant. Um, essentially, what had to happen was his daughter uh, pushed him to do it. She said, Dad, don't my kids deserve this legacy? And he's like, wow, how can I? <laughs> it's right. pretty deep for yeah. a 19-year-old to say, how do, I, how do I turn that down? So he spoke to me a little bit, and he's like, this is the last time doing it. And then when I said, Steve, you know, i really like to turn this into a book. I, I think people love it. They'd love to hear your story. It took him a long time to work up his courage, and we finally met, and he said, okay, now we're going to be in this Waffle House house in Alabama, and uh, you know I'll answer any question you want today as long as you want, and and then we're done. You know, and he broke down crying at times. He was laughing at other times, and he was you know after that he was gracious enough to to talk to me again uh, a few more times. And finally, I got him to come back to Macon, which is my recount at the end of the book, and sort of the same thing we can all imagine. What if you went back and and faced those high school sports memories that have haunted you, or for other people that have were the best moments of their lives. Uh, and get a chance to revisit them. So that's sort of what happens uh, in the epilogue. Have you talked to the any of the characters in the book today? Like now that their story is, you know, it was already once in a magazine, but now it's on a on a bookshelf. What do you think their reactions are? Um, maybe you didn't talk to them today, but before, as the book was coming out, and it's it's an actual thing now. You know, it's a living, breathing yeah, thing that yeah. can be autographed and held and touch what has been their reaction now that the story is a book it's fascinating you know some of them are are over the moon dale otta the shortstop uh you know he's i'm hearing from him all the time and, and i got those guys advanced copies so they got a chance to read it uh you know about two or three weeks ago um and and they, you know he, he's had t-shirts and hats made they say one shot of forever uh and so i've heard from you know everyone brian snicker who's now the uh, third base for the Atlanta, third base coach, Atlanta Braves, sent me an email, and he loved it. He's getting the coaches, coaching staff for the Braves to read it. He's trying to get some of the players to read it because he thinks it has good lessons about baseball and coaching, uh, which is pretty cool to think that those guys are, are reading about you know, little old Macon. Um, but, uh, you know, Scharzer hasn't read it. I'm not sure if he's going to. He, you know, he's like, best of luck. I'm headed underground <laughs> now, so we'll see. But in June, June, uh, 7th and 8th, I'm doing the book events in Chicago, and then I'm driving down to Decatur. It's only 10 minutes, 15 minutes away from Macon. Uh, and that'll be, I think that'll be really interesting because a lot of people who are in the book will be there, and it'll be almost like a huge reunion for them. And I'm just going to sort of step back and watch it all unfold, and I'm fascinated by what it's going to be like. You mentioned that some guys have had shirts made with the one shot of forever. Is that 
how did you come up with the title? Are you pretty proud of that people have taken to it and, and kind of identified by that kind of one shot at forever theme? Yeah, I don't know if you've ever gone through this process, Steve, but coming up with like, you know, a title for anything, you can just rack your brain and come up with the horrible ideas, which is what my editor and I did for a while. For a while, we're going to call it Iron Man, which just sounds way too much like the movie and, uh, and just, you know, it's not that evocative. It wasn't until like one night I was with a, a buddy drinking a beer and it's sort of that idea of forever that how this, this season and this game allowed them to do something that had never been done before, never could be done again, but also the forever aspect of how this has impacted their lives and will until each of these guys dies. This is, you know, the most powerful moment in some of their lives. It's, it's not, but there's this ripple effect. And so I got the idea of, of, I thought maybe the forever season would be a cool name. And then I thought of One Shot of Forever, and then my buddy's like, well, what about One Swing It Forever? It's a baseball book. It didn't sound quite right. Um, so, you know, I, I like it. It's, it's always hard to tell you know, how people respond to it, but I thought it was, uh, I thought it was you know, sort of encapsulated a little bit and, you know, rolls off the tongue well. You know, the book itself is, is really, it's really, be- it's got a beautiful cover, you know, with the, the picture, though. It's got a real old school feel to it, kind of puts you in the time frame, get you set to read it. And then, you know, with the book comes these these pages of of things and there's quotes and I've always wondered about these you know it's like Frank, there's a quote from Frank DeFord and um, from Jeff Perlman you know people who are your colleagues and I'm sure you respect what is it like for you when you spent these years writing this book and then you see your colleagues people that you respect and you see the effect that it had on them and how much they enjoy it and that they're willing to put their name behind the book what does that mean to you as a writer? Oh, it's huge. I mean, it's such a weird business writing books uh, because when you write a magazine article, you're writing, you know, it's your job. You know, I write for SI and they expect something of me and I produce it for them. Writing books, you're writing for a publisher, but really you're writing for yourself. Um, and so you you get so deep into a book and, you know, just you and, and your computer for so many hours at a time. And, and by the end, you really don't know if it's any good or not. You hope it is. You don't really know. And then you send out these, these galley copies of how it works, you know, way back in November. Um, and you're hoping hoping someone likes it. Uh, and so I remember the last book I did, I got a, a blurb um, from uh, Chuck Klosterman, who I'd never met before, but I always really respected his writing. I, I was just so excited by that. And then I got one from Bill Bradley, the basketball player, you know, then a uh, senator, and, and he's one of my childhood heroes. Uh, you know, A Sense of Where You Are is one of my favorite books ever. Uh, and that was, you know, it made, I didn't really care what happened with the book after that, you know, because I was so excited. And then in this case, Buzz Bissinger, the guy who's I've, you know, I think of Friday Night Lights is perhaps one of the greatest sports books of all time, if not the greatest. Uh, and the fact, and I didn't know him either, and the fact that he liked it, that's just, you know, you're so you're so excited, you're so grateful to these people for taking the time to even read your book, because that's a lot to ask of someone. Hey, will you read this book? That, you know, it's like a couple days. It's a whole weekend right there. Um, and so Jeff, Frank, Kate Murphy, everyone else who did it, um, yeah, that's it's part of the business, and it's one of those things where you really appreciate other people take the time. You know, when you you've been writing books for a long time now, and when you started, you know, you wrote a book. The book came out. It was this, like we talked about, this thing you can hold, you can feel, you can touch. Well, now it's more than that. Uh, there's eBooks. You know, it's on the Kindle, it's on the iPad. How do you like? How do you like the way the book can come to life? And did you think about using the 
electronic version to maybe include some things that didn't fit within the pages of the book? Or is that maybe something you'll consider down the road with different books? Kind of playing with that e-format. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I don't think I'm quite as tech-savvy as this. Um, I think there's a certain books that's great for this one. It's more of like an old-school book, even just in its in what's in there. Uh, I ended up including a lot of notes at the end because I like to include little stories that don't necessarily fit um, in the book itself. So that's there, but I wouldn't say this one would lend itself that well to it. Um, but other books, I can imagine it being perfect for. You know, uh, mm-hmm. anything that's got a... Uh, sort of a half-life. You know, the last book I did was about the NBA, our beautiful game. And that one, you know, I'm writing about players, Kobe, Dwight Howard, who are still playing it. And I think it'd be really cool in a book format to be able to read a book like that and then see little updates and little, uh, you know, if it's a year later, well, boom, where they are now. Uh, I haven't tried that kind of stuff, but as a reader, I think I'd love it. You know, I've always said I like to read ebooks. books you know, especially because you can read in the dark the way they can manipulate the ink and stuff. But the only thing I don't like is I can't bring my iPad to you on, you know, June 8th in Decatur and say, hey, can you sign my iPad? You know, so I think that that's one little drawback. You know, at SI, you you primarily write about basketball. I mean, you had an incredible article in SI last week, which I wanted to tell you I loved, about where talent comes from, and you focused on Kobe Bryant. Now, in this book, you know, like you said, your last book was a basketball book. This book you focused on baseball, and you wrote about baseball. Um, how How is it different to kind of move from sport to sport? And did you feel like you got in a little bit of groove with baseball? Would you like to do more baseball, maybe some more bonus pieces and more things on, on baseball? Because you do so much great basketball work. Yeah, I really enjoy writing about baseball. Sometimes I feel like it's a little harder, uh, especially in season, to get the kind of access that you want to players because they're playing every day. You know, when you do an NBA story, players, you know, this season is a little more compact because of the, uh, obviously, just the work stoppage. But, uh, but you know, they might play on Monday, they might not play again until Thursday. That gives you some time to go to practice, to maybe get some time away from the court. When I, I covered baseball for one uh, one season uh, for SI, and I found that was challenging. These guys were really a lot more friendly. You could get them every day, which was nice. Before the ball game, but it was almost always in a clubhouse setting, which was a little tough. Uh, also, I mean, I know you had him on this podcast, and you got, I think Verducci sets the bar yeah. pretty high. Uh, you know, we've got some really good baseball writers. Um, so, uh, I'd like to do more of it. I, I like stories more where you can get away from the arena, uh, or the, or the, the, the park itself. Anything that takes you into the human element. So, if, you know, it doesn't matter what sport it is. You know, badminton, all right, if it, if it does that. The Sportscasters are here. We're talking with Chris Ballard. He's got a great new book. It's in bookstores today, May 15th. It's called One Shot of Forever, A Small Town, An Unlikely Coach, and a Magical Baseball Season. You can follow Chris on Twitter. He is at SI underscore Chris Ballard. Again, I mentioned he had a really great story in last week's SI, and I think you mentioned on Twitter today you have something in this week's magazine about Tim Duncan. Am I right about that? Yeah. Now, this was uh, this is what I've been wanting to write for a while. I I uh, just personally really appreciate Tim's game, and I, I think he's unique in the NBA uh, for a lot of reasons. So uh, I wanted to write a big story about him, and the, the problem is that Tim doesn't really give access at all. So this took, you know, I started this in maybe January, working on, on getting access and getting a sit-down with Tim. And, you know, I had to uh, 
had to be vouched for by an assistant coach with the Spurs and <laughs> the media guy, Tom James, I've known for, for 12 years. And so he really pushed for it. And so finally, then it was still a matter of like, well, Tim might give you 20 minutes. We'll see. Um, and then Tim ended up being great. We talked for 45 minutes. Uh, and he's like smart and he's got a dry wit and all this whole side of him you never see because he doesn't want people to see it, which is part of what I find fascinating. He's so good. If you know, if you look at the 15-year run that the Spurs have had with Tim Duncan since he got there, it is the highest winning percentage of any 15-year run in NBA history. Wow. No team has been more successful over 15 years than that. Number two is the the Lakers of the Magic era. Um, Tim Duncan, the first uh, 13 years of his career, made the All NBA team and the All Defensive team. Uh, the second most is sixth by David Robinson. I mean, it, just you start to look at how good he's been for so long, and you wonder why isn't this guy spoken about like people talk about Kobe? Uh, you know, why why is Shaq considered by a lot of people, you know, more dominant than Duncan? I don't know that he has been. So that was the impetus for it. Set out, uh, you know, spent a lot of time talking to to people around and people have known him: Steve Kerr, Dan Ferry, Malik Rose, Popovich, and hopefully got some uh, some really interesting little uh, perspectives on him. You know, we talked about validation earlier and how much it can mean to a writer to have his peers kind of open up and read the book and say nice things about it. What did it mean to you to have a guy who's usually so reserved and, you know, where a PR guy says maybe you only get 20 minutes and then he totally just is, it turns out to be this great guy and like really opens up to you and you kind of you kind of know in your back, back of your mind that, you know, you kind of earn that respect though, huh? Maybe <laughs> you know it's tough. I uh, I had a you know I had a big advantage in that the assistant coach Mike Budenholzer was my college teammate. I played college basketball with him at Pomona College, so you know it's like okay, so Mike's been there the whole time. Tim's been there, so I'm sure if Mike said to Tim, you can you know this guy's a good guy or whatever, uh, that helps. So I had that advantage. Um, you know maybe Tim was in a good mood that day. I don't know. You know Tom James said it was probably the longest print interview he'd done in ten years. And that speaks a lot about Tim. Maybe he's just got no point in his career at this age, at 36, where he's like, okay, maybe I will open up a bit. I'm not going to be around much longer. I'm not sure how much it was anything I did. I did spend the whole night before preparing questions. I've been told that Tim really responds to humor. And if you don't, uh, if you if you become too serious with him, he just shuts down immediately. So I prepared like 10 questions that were designed to elicit a laugh from Tim Duncan, uh, which might have helped a little bit. I would sort of, every time I got a little slow, I'd fire off one of those just to try to get him to laugh a little bit. Um, so maybe that helped. Well, I'll tell you what, if you're a Chris Ballard fan, and we are here at the Sportscasters, it's a great month for you. He had a great piece in last week's magazine. He's got another one. It sounds, I can't wait to read it. I always download the magazine at midnight on Tuesdays so when we get done with the show. It's the way I, love, it's the way I like to wind down, uh, get the magazine on my iPad. I'm looking forward to that. And again, the book, which I highly recommend. It's called One Shot at Forever, A Small Town, An Unlikely Coach, a Magical Baseball Season. It's on shelves now. It's met, it's available in uh, ebook formats. And you can follow Chris, who I'm sure will be posting, at SI underscore Chris Ballard. And like he mentioned, he's going to be around the way a bit, uh, especially if you're in Illinois uh, in June, June 7th, 8th, and 9th. He's going to be in uh, in the Illinois area. So, Anything else for people who need to know, like where to go to find out information about the book, or did we kind of handle it pretty good there? That's that's great. Yeah, uh, Wednesday, uh, May 6th, tomorrow, May sixteenth, I will be uh, 
at a Bay Area book event in Berkeley at 7 p.m. at BookSync for anyone who's in the Bay Area. But other than that, uh, you did a great job. I really appreciate you letting me come on and talk about it. Yeah, thank you so much. We really appreciate you being on the show. Uh, last, very last thing, uh, you got to see a round before I asked you this. So who's going to be in the finals and who's going to win it? Wow, and so much of that depends on Chris Bosch at this point. Is he coming back or not? Uh, right now, not knowing the status of Chris Bosch, I think it's the Thunder's ear. I think there's going to be a lot of very sad Seattle Sonics fans <laughs> across the country who are going to have to watch this occur with, with their team. Oh, man. Uh, but, That's yeah, tough. they looked great last night against the Lakers. They really um, did. Yeah, if the Heat come back if fully healthy, I think it's a great final series. I think Thunder might still take it. All right, thanks, Chris. Good luck with the book, man. Thanks so much. All right, thank you. All right, we have to thank John Smoltz, Tom Verducci, and Chris Ballard for making this, if not the best show we've ever had, one that would be in the discussion. Don't forget to check out our other podcast, Football Nation Presents the Sportscasters, at www.footballnation.com and iTunes. This week we have a conversation with Chris Burke from SI.com. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash the Sportscasters. Find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Our blog is the sportscasters.blogspot.com or the sportscasters.tumblr.com. You can find our website, www.sports-casters.com, for all that information. Again, don't forget or be afraid to email us at sportscasters at gmail.com with any kind of negativity, positivity, <laughs> suggestions, guests you want to hear. People on Twitter will tell you, if you ask me to try to get someone on the show, I'll do everything I can to get them on. Right. Uh, we've done it many times before. Someone asked to try to get Melter. Melter was on the show. You know, people have asked to try to get people that we haven't been able to get on, but I definitely tried. So if uh, there's someone you'd like to hear on the Sportscasters, don't be afraid to email us and uh, I'll work on it. Uh, pick four is our last piece of business for today. Uh, great week for Don. A great two weeks for Don. He's 6-2 uh, and two in the last two weeks. Another 3-1. and one. He had the Celtics over the Hawks in our game of the week. He also had Strasburg and the Nationals over the Pirates. And he had the 76ers closing out the Bulls in six games. All those worked. His only loss was he saw, thought the Nuggets would beat the Lakers. That was his bold prediction. Lakers ended up winning the series in seven. He almost had it. Uh, the Nuggets were in that game right till the end. Yep. Game seven. That brings Don to 36-43 and 43 on the season. Which isn't bad considering where he started. Which was <laughs> it was a long ugly. way off. It was ugly. Uh, I had a 1-3 this week. Not what I was hoping for. Uh, t- had a really tough loss with Halliday and the Phillies um, against the Pirates. Uh, also, I had um, I won the Celtics over the Hawks. I didn't think there'd be any Game 7s in the NBA. There was two in Round 1. And uh, I also kind of doubled down on the Lakers, winning in six games, and it didn't happen. So 1-3, and 42-35. Dawan should kick us off for this week. All right, the game of the week this week again involves, well, not again, but involves the Lakers. We're going to go with tomorrow night's game on 9.30 on TNT. That's the Lakers at the Thunder. I've been riding Oklahoma City all year when I needed a win, so there's no reason to think that they won't again tomorrow or, yeah, tomorrow night. So I'm going to stick with them. 
I might have picked the Lakers if they didn't just get absolutely destroyed right. the way they did. It seemed like Oklahoma City could do anything they want. Um, I think maybe Kobe getting, I don't know if I want to say tired because I don't know for sure, but he hasn't looked like himself ever since he was sick, which is another reason why my predictions last week didn't pan out. You know, show up for game six. I'm hoping the Lakers are going to win, and Kobe Bryant's got the flu all day. Yeah. He looked like shit, you know, uh, physically. You know, he just looked awful. And um, so I'm going to stick with Oklahoma City as well. All right, my host choice this week, I'm going to go back to the puck and hope I can win a game here, and that's the Devils at the Rangers. I'm going to take the Devils here and – Game two. Game two. Right. Sorry. I didn't write down the time. That's it's 8 o'clock tomorrow. on the NBC Sports Network tomorrow. Um. Look, they have to be better than they were game one. Yep. They only managed to get 21 shots through, I believe. I know the Rangers block a lot of shots, but you're one of the better offensive teams left in the playoffs, surprisingly, because it hasn't always been Devils hockey. The Rangers actually play more Devils hockey when you think of stereotypical Devils hockey than the Devils do now. And I just think they have to have a better performance than they did in game one where they were kind of uh, embarrassed a little bit. So I'm going to take the Devils on the road. We do this separately, but... This happens a lot. If you listen, I had the same thing. Devils over the Rangers. I think it's going to be a long series. It's going to be a long series. Devils are going to have to get some wins quick. So I look to just look to see the Devils rebound. And you know what? The Rangers have barely won a game all playoffs by more than a goal. I know right. they won game one, three to nothing. But even that, it was three third period goals. The Rangers just played so tight. That's why right. if, if they are going to go on and continue this and win the Stanley Cup, man, it's... It feels like at some point they have to open it up a little there bit. There was a Sabres year that they got 99. swept in a series. Oh. oh, I'm talking about, yeah, they they remind me a little bit of the Sabres in 99 where there's not a ton of talent, but they play a ton of D. But, no, there's a year that the Sabres were swept in a series uh, by Montreal, by, I believe. 4-3, four, 4-3, three, 4-3. Four, three, four, three. every game went to overtime yep. or every game was three one of the goal four games. Three overtimes, all 4-3. All one goal game. I mean, the Rangers are going to be barely better than every team they've played in this in the playoffs and potentially win the Stanley Cup. I mean, hey, however you do it, you do it. But I just think the wheels have got to fall off that eventually. They live too close to the edge there. Uh, my winning pitcher this week, I'm going to go with Doug Fister. He's only had one decision this year, but he's sporting a pretty sexy 0.54 ERA. Wow. He pitches against the Twins, so it's not exactly a powerhouse. Uh I also didn't write that game down. I'm slacking here. Jesus, Don. It's got to be Thursday. I'm going to go on uh, my winning pitcher this week. I'm going to go with you, Darvish. 5-1, 2.84 ERA for the Rangers over Oakland. Uh, Oakland's going to pitch Tommy Malone, who's 5-2, and two with uh, an ERA of 3.92. That game's at 8.05 uh, tomorrow night, Wednesday the 16th. All right, my bold prediction this week is... I'm going to double down basically on Oklahoma, and I'm going to say they win this this series in a sweep. Uh, the only thing that scares me a little bit is the Lakers have the best player potentially in the league, and Kobe Bryant, I think he can – He might steal a game. might steal him. one by right. himself. He's kind of like a goalie in that respect where he could just steal a game. But I think talent-wise, Oklahoma City is just that much better, and they can win the next three. All right, I'm going to have a pretty similar bowl prediction. I'm going to say the Kings are going to sweep the Coyotes – Kings already have one sweep under their belt. Again, probably the reason this is bold is because Mike Smith has played so well that there's no reason to think he couldn't steal a game. It's bold to predict any sweeps after only one game. Right. Uh, so I'm going to say that the Kings are going to win the next three. Kings have been the hot team, so I'm going to ride it and see if I can uh, sneak that out. My game for those scoring at home, was the pitching game, was a Thursday game at 1 o'clock p.m. So you'll all be working anyway, so... 
It's not a big deal. <laughs> All right. Uh, I want to thank our guests today, Chris Ballard, Tom Verducci, and John Smoltz. I want to remind you to email us, thesportscasters at gmail.com. Remind you to check out our website, www.sports-casters.com. And remember to go to Football Nation for our other podcast with Chris Burke at www.footballnation.com. Don, cue the hip. All right.